Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hills of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, and commander of his army. Saul was laying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, but you have, uh, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my, my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life is precious, was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. 
You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I'm going to explain why that sounds familiar. It, it is actually helpful that it sounds familiar. And um, notice this is not my Bible. Uh, technology is a wonderful thing until it's not. And this week it decided to not be. I can't print. The printer's down. So I've got to use my laptop. So this is going to be fun. Um, this will be different. Um, hopefully it won't be too much of a distraction. Why don't we start then with prayer? We really need it. Um, Lord Jesus, as we sang, you are worthy. Uh, Lord, you alone are worthy to be in heaven, to be at the right hand of the Father. Lord, you alone are worthy to ascend to the throne. You alone are worthy of all the praise of all the angels. Lord, you are worthy of all the praise of all your saints. Lord, you are worthy of the praise of all of creation. And so much more, Lord, you are so much greater than all of that. And so, Father, we're grateful that you have called us into this worship, this, this pro proclamation of, of Jesus' worthiness, that you've made us fit, that by his blood we can be here to worship you. Lord, what a tremendous statement. What a tremendous thing to, to have our lips announce the worth of Jesus Christ. Lord, we don't do it well. We don't do it fully. We won't do it enough. But may we continue to do it until you come, until you call us to your home, until you set us free from the bondage of sin. And then we can praise you with uh, unhindered lips, with no more stuttering and stammering, no more inward gaze of how other people think of me, uh, but Lord, just focused on who you are and your beauty and your glory. Thank you for being who you are, Jesus, and thank you for making us into the image of you, to make us every day more like who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would have that purpose, that you would accomplish those purposes in us. And Lord, this morning I want to pray for our sister Joanne. Thank you so much, Lord. A couple of weeks ago I prayed kind of boldly, uh, felt almost foolish saying it. Would you get her knee replacement surgery scheduled soon? And it was within a week and a half or so that you did it. And uh, Lord, why do I doubt you? you? You are powerful over all things and good to your people. And so thank you that her surgery went well. Lord, I pray for her now in the most difficult part, which is the recovery, the rehab. And so Lord, as um, she is dealing with this, the significant amount of pain that can, comes with uh, the, the surgery, but also the, um, the physical rehab that attends that. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would be with her in those moments. Lord, when she's crying out and when she is struggling, uh, Lord, would you remind her that you care for her, that you love her. Lord Jesus, remind her that you know what it means to feel pain, to feel the searing pain of nails tearing flesh. And uh, Lord, would you be with her in those times? And, and Lord, I pray that you would be with her through us too as we go to visit, to pray with her, to read scripture to her, to just sit and listen, and sometimes, Lord, to just be quiet and moan with her. Um, Lord, would you bring her healing and, and restoration, we pray. And uh, Father, I want to pray also for the Racies since their uh, departure date shifted and now shifted back and um, their house isn't finished and all the, the issues that are going on with them in their life. Lord, would you uh, answer prayer and work things miraculously together for their good and for your glory? Um, Lord, it would be better if their orders got canceled and we got to keep them, but that's not in your sovereign plan. And so we want to honor what you're doing in their life and, and send them off with, uh, with our best wishes and the greatest amount of help we can. So be with them in their planning and their execution. 
And uh, Father, I want to pray one more time for my friend Daniel Homequest, uh, previous pastor of this church. And um, Lord, his, uh, his suffering with uh, cancer and uh, chemotherapy now and um, uh, hernias in the sites mm -hmm. of the incisions. And on top of all that, Lord, his, his church is uh, seeking to remove him. And, and Lord, okay. just I can't imagine the, the burden that's on his shoulders. Would you be with my brother this morning and, and give him strength, Lord, as he is uh, perhaps preaching. I'm not sure if he's preaching this morning or not. Um, but, Lord, would you also bring peace and unity and harmony to Calvary EV Free? Um, Lord, would you help the people who are opposed to him get over whatever the issue is? Uh, would you help Daniel and the church come to agreement? And I pray that, the, that there would be reconciliation and peace in a way that can't be explained. Have mercy on them. Father, I want to also thank you for sparing us from those kind of problems. We've had a long history of peace and unity in our church, and, and Lord, I don't take that for granted. Um, that is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would preserve that in us. Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word, and, uh, that we would hear and understand what you have to say this morning. Uh, Lord, speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so I think I've told this story before. There's a, a man named Joseph Tsan. He was a pastor in Romania in the 70s and in the 80s under uh, communist, um, uh, communist Soviet rule. And uh, when uh, Nikolai Ceausescu was the dictator, or whatever his official role was in, uh, in Romania, he had uh, Pastor Zahn arrested because Joseph would preach what the Bible said. And uh, when they arrested Joseph, they brought him in and they put him through some really intense interrogation. And he would answer their questions and, and hear what they had to say. And then they would tell him to go home and stop preaching. And he said, I can't do that. And so he would go home and they said, report back the next morning. And he would report back for more torture and more persecution. Um, this went on for a while. And then finally he said, he, he told the interrogator, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. My preaching will speak 10 times louder after you kill me. He would not stop preaching the gospel. He would not disobey the authority that was put over him either. And, and I thought in Joseph's on, there's just this, this wild way that we're supposed to react with uh, uh, ruling authorities, which is with respect, but we also have to say you have your limits. You can't tell us what we can and cannot preach. That's not the role of the government. You can't tell us to be silent when we're commanded to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have to do that with, with care and respect. And, and this week, as we look at this story in, Joseph, in, uh, Joseph's, in David's life again, uh, we're seeing him do that once more. And so that's why it sounded familiar. Um, but really what's going on is what we're doing is we're having to look at this and say, how do we properly resist what God has established? Um, and what I mean by that is Romans 13 says there's no authority that is not established by God. But that doesn't mean that we do everything every authority says. Um, our ultimate authority is God. And so we're going to wrestle through that this morning with David and Saul one more time. Um, the story, as, as Matthew said, it sounds familiar. And that's because it is. In chapter 23 and chapter 24, um, David went through a similar thing with Saul. The Ziphites told on him. They said that he was in Hakalah, that he was uh, in the, the area of Jeshmon, and, and they narked on him. They went and told Saul, and Saul took 3,000 men, as he does here, and he came after David. 
And so um, I just, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I want to address this critical scholars, that is people who don't believe the Bible is inerrant or, or accurate, will say this is what's called a duplication, uh, where the same story is told twice with slightly different things. And um, they wind up in the Bible together and it just proves that the Bible's not reliable. Well, can we please for a second not assume that the authors of the Bibles are complete idiots? Um, they're doing things. You'll see these stories that duplicate like that really close together often. And, and there's a reason for that. So, for example, um, in uh, Matthew, um, there's the story of the feeding of the 4,000, and then there's the feeding of the 5,000. And th those two stories are very close. And so critical scholars say it's the same event and it's told two different ways. It's, it's like, no, that's not what's going on. The problem is we're reading the Bible and we want it to be strictly chronological. And this event happened, this event happened, this event happened. The way the authors of the scriptures often write is thematically. They'll draw themes together. And so there, there's reasons that they put these two stories together. And that's what's happening here with chapter 23. And now we're in chapter 26 with those two stories. And by the way, there are some significant differences. Um, the, in chapter 23, it took place in a cave where Saul left his men and went into a cave where David and his men were. And in this chapter, it's David and uh, Abishai, but David leaves his men and goes to where Saul and his men are. So there's a, there's a reversal there. Um, there's another one that I need to address really quick, too, because if you look it up later on this afternoon, you'll go, hey, what's going on? Um, in 23, chapter, uh, chapter 23, verse 19, it says, Is not David hiding among us in the stronghold of, strongholds of Horish, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshmon? And what you heard Matthew read this morning is that the hill of Hakalah is on the east of Jeshmon. So which is it? Well, it could theoretically be both. It could be that the hill wraps from the east to the south, maybe. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the best answer. That word for east can also be translated in the face of or before. And most of the other modern translations translate east as before. So it could be before uh, Jeshmon to the south. And that would be okay. I don't know why the ESV chose to translate it as east. It can be east. It doesn't have to be. So. Um, just get that out of the way. Okay, there's the technical mumbo jumbo. Let's set that aside. Let's see what's going on. With this story, as a matter of fact, it often happens in, in 1 Samuel, is the most important part, the most important thing that's said is the dialogue, not necessarily the story, but the dialogue, who's speaking and what they say. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of go through the story rather quickly to kind of frame it and then focus on the, the uh, discourse, because that's the important part. Uh, so here's what's happened. David finds out that Saul is after him and says, who will go down into the camp of Saul with me? What? Saul is trying to kill you. He's come out to this wilderness, and your plan is to go walking into his camp? Doesn't that sound insane? Well, of course, David's no fool. I mean, we've seen him behave brilliantly. Here's what's going on is he, spent, he sent spies to find out, is Saul here and where is he? And when the, Saul, when the spies return, what they said is, yeah, here he is, and something's going on in the camp. There's something weird happening. So David and Abishai go, and they look over the camp, and what they see is they see Saul laying in the middle of the camp and his army laying around him. What they don't see is centuries keeping guard. They don't see anybody watching over any of this. When they look down, they see the entire army flat on their back, sound asleep. 
And so David sees that and says, something weird is going on. Let's go down and investigate. Now, when they go down, it's pretty obvious where Saul is because Saul has got a spear stuck in the ground at his head. His spear, that's, that's a regular feature with Saul, stuck in the ground at his head. And so it's like a beam standing out going, here he is. And so what, what happens is Abishai looks and he says, this is it, man. This, this is our chance. The Lord has given Saul into your hand. And so he says, uh, let me strike him with a spear. I'll strike him once and I won't strike him twice. And, and this is, I think, a hint as to why these two stories are so similar and so close together in 1 Samuel. Because what, what Abishai said was, um, literally, and I, I won't uh, repeat. I won't repeat to him. I won't duplicate to him. It's not the word twice. There's a couple of different ways of saying twice. It has more to duplication, more replication, that kind of thing. So what does he mean by that? I think it could be a mild rebuke to David. David, you had your chance. In the cave, you could have got him. So let me take the spear, and I'm going to hit him once, and it's over. We won't have to go through this again. So I think that's, that could be a mild rebuke. So if that's true, then it makes sense that the author would put these two stories pretty close together. We're supposed to remember this. It's an important lesson not only about David, but about his men. Um, and, and it'll become important as we go through. So um, David re responds, no, not, not going to happen. Don't do it. Instead, grab the spear, grab the water jug, and let's get out of here. So they, he grabs the spear, grabs the water jug, and it's David who takes it, because apparently he doesn't trust Abishai. <laughs> he might give, a, give it a shot anyway. And they go up on a hill facing the camp. And so once they get up on the hill, David stood on the far side and he calls out. And what's noteworthy is he calls out not to Saul, but to Abner. He says, Abner, uh, will you not answer? Are you not the man? Um, and so Abner says, well, who are you? And, and this is where David begins to rebuke Abner. You didn't protect your king. You deserve to die. This was your role, and you deserve to die for that. So why Abner? Why, why point that out? Why not start with Saul? Well, I think what it is, is is a picture of what is going on here. David snuck into the camp. He took the spear, and he took the water jug. Why the water jug? Isn't that silly? There's a point to this. David is making a really solid point, and it's why he addresses Abner. The spear is the symbol of Saul's power and authority, his rule, his military might, and he's taken it from him. Just picked it up and walked away with it. Abner is the one who is the expression of his military might, is his military commander. So it's your, your responsibility to protect the military might of your king, and you didn't do it. He's, he's, he's talking indirectly to Saul, saying, Saul, look, your, your strength, the strength of your, your power is in my hand. Literally and figuratively, I'm holding your spear right now, dude. I've got it. The Lord has put you into my hand. So what's up with the water jug? It seems like a silly thing to grab. When you're out in the wilderness and wandering around, a, a water jug can save your life. It's a canteen. It, it's the source of water. In other words, this is David saying, Saul, God has put into your, my hands your military power and your very life, and I didn't take them. And so Abner is, is, is flustered by that, and it's Saul then who, who takes over and says, I know who that is. Is that your voice, my son David? 
And it's the same kind of discourse they had when, when uh, David spared his life in the cave. They go, kind of go back and forth, and why are you chasing me, and what did I do wrong, and, and I'm not a bad guy. And, and David you know, pleads his case with Saul, I have not done anything wrong. And Saul kind of repents and says, I, I've, I've made a huge mistake. Uh, I've, I've really messed up, and, and I'm wrong. Um, and they go in peace. And so they just kind of separate, and they go. Um, David did tell him to send a young man over to get the spear and the water jug. He doesn't want to steal from him. He's made his point. And so they depart, and they go their separate ways again. Um, so that's kind of the story. That's the basic story. It's very similar to the cave story, isn't it? Very, very much like that. David cut off a piece of his robe. And at that last uh, couple weeks ago when I preached that, I said that was a symbol of him cutting away the symbol of his royal uh, authority. He, he cut off a portion of it, saying that it's in my hands, and I can do with it what I want. Um, and the same thing's going on here. So let's go back to the dialogue, because that's where we really get to what is this about. So when Abishai says, let me, let me put a spear through his heart, David responds in verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down in battle and perish. So this is how David is processing this. David has been anointed to be king. He knows that's coming. He believes that promise. He trusts that promise. This is true. He will be king. What he won't do is kill Saul to get there. In other words, and, and don't forget, David is a man of blood, right? He is, a, he is a fierce warrior. David has killed his tens of thousands. He killed Goliath. He took out tons of Philistines. He's not afraid to kill. It's, it's not like he's a pacifist here. He will not use that power against the Lord's anointed. Instead, he says, something else is good. God's going to do this. God will take him out when the time is right. The Lord will strike him. He could, God could just nail him in an instant and knock him dead. Or it'll be just his day will to come to die. He'll just die of old age or whatever it is. Or perhaps he'll fall in a battle. That's how God is going to do it. That's not what I'm going to do. And so that's, that's David's approach to this. So this is that, that idea of resisting what God has established. God put Saul on the throne. Then God rejected him. But God did not remove him from the throne. God chose David. But David hasn't ascended to the throne. So how does David respond to Saul? Does he let him kill him? He's, he's the Lord's anointed. He must be right. He won't let him kill him. He's going to continue to flee. He's going to stay away. He's going to try to demonstrate to Saul, hey, I'm, I'm not your enemy. But he's not going to go beyond that. He's not going to take it into his own hands and go and kill him himself. Um, so Saul, you know, God will take him out how he's going to take him out. This has to do with how the kingdom comes. David's kingdom is going to come not by David's force, not by David's might, not by David's skill as a, as a warrior. David's kingdom will come because God will give it to him. God has already anointed him. He is protecting him in the wilderness. He's waiting until the right time when Saul will fall and David will ascend to the throne. So David is looking forward to the kingdom coming when God establishes it. That's the same thing that happens with Jesus' kingdom. That's exactly the same way that Jesus is approaching his kingdom. When he was on earth, when he was ministering, he was going around preaching, healing, and doing all these wonderful signs, and people kept looking to him and thinking, this is the Messiah, he's going to ascend to the throne at any minute. Wait till he kills those uh, Romans and kicks them out. 
But Jesus didn't do it that way. So John 6, chapter 6, verse 15 says, Perceiving that they were about to come and make him, or take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus understood the, the, the messianic fervor that was stirring because of who he was, and he saw, they're going to try to force me into the kingdom. He wasn't saying, I'm not the king. What he was saying is, this is not the way to get there. And so he withdrew. Um, so how then does the kingdom come? Because this is us now. This is where we're at. In between Jesus' first and second coming, we're out in the wilderness with David. We know there's a throne headed, for, headed this way, but it's not here yet. And now instead, we have the worldly powers reigning and ruling. So how does the kingdom come? How do, how do we wait for Jesus' kingdom? Well, Matthew chapter 13 has a string of parables that talk about the coming of the kingdom. The well-known parables, the parable of the soils. That's where the seed is sown and it grows in some places and doesn't grow in other places. And right after that is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. It's a field that's growing up and there's wheat in it and there's a bunch of weeds coming up. And so what's going on with those is Jesus says, look, the, the kingdom of God is like this. What's sown in the first parable is the word of the kingdom. He says that literally, the word of the kingdom is sown in the first parable. In other words, the way the kingdom comes is the word of the kingdom is spread liberally, indiscriminately across the world. It falls on all kinds of different people. We don't discriminate against who we're going to preach to. We preach to everybody. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That, that goes out to all people. We don't try to figure out what kind of soil we're dealing with. We just, we're, we're really bad farmers. We just throw seed everywhere. And that's a good thing. That's how this, the kingdom comes is it goes to all people indiscriminately. What about the wheat and the weeds? Well, now the parable shifts imagery. The... the um, the people are not the soil, now the people are the plants growing in the field, and the field is the world. And so as the man who's planted this field looks out in the, the field that he's planted, what he sees is wheat growing up. But his servants come to him and say, but there's, there's weeds growing up in the middle of it, do you want us to rip the weeds out? And the master says, nope, hold on, just wait until the harvest. And so the picture that we get with that is the kingdom right now is in this world and it's mixed. There are people in and out. There's, there's weeds and there's wheat and they're all over the place and it's just a big mess. It, it's a field, but it's going to produce a great harvest. And so this is how the kingdom comes is by the, the indiscriminate preaching of the word and by recognizing that wheat and weeds are going to grow up together. In other words, we don't expect the world to be perfect now, weed free, get them all out. It's going to be a mess for a while until the coming of the harvest. The next two parables that we see are the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of leaven. And the idea there is, is Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's a little speck. I, I, if you, I had one in my hand, you couldn't see it. It's just a little like ink pen dot point. It's a tiny little thing. But when you sow it and it grows into this big, huge shrub, it's giant. And it, it fills this big area. It grows really large and the birds of the air come and nest in it, he says. Or the other one is the parable of the leaven. A woman takes a little bit of leaven and puts it in some dough and mixes it in. And slowly that leaven filters through and winds up leavening the whole lump. Everything becomes leavened. And so this is a picture of what is it like when the kingdom comes? How does the kingdom come now? In a way you can't perceive. It's very small. It starts tiny. It starts almost insignificant, but it grows. 
And so what we have is the confidence to say today, as we're preaching the gospel, as we're worshiping God, as we're doing what Jesus has commanded us to do, that leaven is beginning to spread. That, that, that mustard seed is blossoming and growing. It, it's it, not in a way that we can see it, not in a way that feels particularly like it's advancing at every moment, but it is growing. And eventually the whole lump will be, um, will be leavened. And then the whole thing caps off with the parable of a man who casts a net into the sea and pulls out all kinds of fish. And that, I think, is looking at the end of the kingdom, when the, the final day comes. And it kind of ties all of this together. He pulls in the fish and he sorts them out, the good from the bad. That, that's like the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He says, don't, don't pull the weeds up now, you'll disturb the, the wheat. Um, we can't run the world by ourselves. We need the non-believers, the, the people who are opposed to the gospel, the people who have never heard it, to keep this thing humming. So we can't pull them up, but at the end they'll be sorted out. And so this is that idea of we're looking forward to that kingdom coming. It's, it's a sure thing. It's happening. We can't perceive it. It's going very slowly, very small, unnoticed. But it is coming. And there's a day coming when the harvest will come in when the reapers will go into the field and gather up the weeds and throw them into the fire and the wheat will be put in the, in the barn. There, there is that day when the, the plants that have been sown into the soil that, that grow, they will produce 60 or 100 fold. There is that day coming and that's the assurance that we have. So what we're supposed to do in the meantime is do what we've been told to do. What is our commission? Hint, you see it every time you leave this building, unless you go out the front door. We're to go out and make disciples of all the nations. We are not to go out and conquer all the nations. We don't go out and, and, um, and overthrow governments who don't like Christians. We don't go out and, and slaughter people in the streets who are infidels, who, who don't acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That's not how it happens. That's a violation of those parables of the wheat and the weeds and, and that kind of thing. Nor is our commission to go out and ridicule and, and, and belittle and insult those who don't believe. That, that's not really going to win them. The weeds and the wheat in the field get the same fertilizer. They get the same care. They get the same rain. They get the same sun. And so we're not to go out necessarily and ridicule those who oppose the gospel. We should answer them. We must answer them. We must answer them clearly, but we also have to answer them with respect and care, remembering this is a person made in God's image as well. And so our commission is to go and make disciples of the nations. In other words, go spread that seed indiscriminately. Go, go spread it everywhere. And don't be surprised when the, field in the, har or the, the harvest field has weeds in it. When people in the world, and by the way, I've heard people say that shows that the church is a mix of believers and non-believers. Jesus is really clear that field is the world. It's not the church. As we're in the world, we can expect to have weeds. It's going to be, Saul actually did come after David with 3,000 men with the intent of killing him. There's a giant weed that, that really actually happened, and David wasn't surprised by it. We just know that those kind of things are coming. And so, what we must do instead is what Jesus has told us. And I think one of the clearest places that, that expresses it is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, Let the Lord's servant, oh, um, uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's what we're doing is we're going out. We're not, we're not going to nail um, Saul to the ground with his spear. Instead, we're going to do what, Paul did, or what uh, David did, which is a call to possible repentance. Saul, I've got your sword. I've got your spear. I've got your jug of water. I could have killed you, and I didn't. And it was a plea, please repent. Please stop persecuting me. Please stop coming after me. And, and remember, Saul in, in chapter 23 said, now I know that the ki- you are, you're going to be the king. The kingdom is going to be yours. And he still seems to be fighting against it. He still seems to be wrestling against it. That's what our commission is going to be like. There will be times where we'll see great fruit. There will be times when, when missions will be just an overwhelming harvest. And then there will be times when it's really super frustrating. We do have the book of Jeremiah in the Bible. I'm glad we read from it. Jeremiah called and called and called, please, please repent. Lay down your arms. Don't flee to Egypt. Don't fight. This is from God. Just put it in. And he got, nobody went with him. Well, that's not true. The uh, Ethiopian eunuch um, did wind up getting some great promises out of that. So it's, it's not all horrible, but... That was an unexpected person, wasn't it? You wouldn't expect out of all of Israel that this foreigner and a eunuch who's not allowed to go into the temple even would be the one who has promised a great blessing from Jeremiah. It, it, what I mean is, this is nothing new. This is what we're facing now, the opposition, the struggle, the accusations, the lies, the distortions, the, all of that that we face now is nothing new. This is what it means to be the church. It's what it meant to be the church in Jeremiah's day. It meant to be the church in David's day. It made, meant, it's what meant to be the church in Cain and Abel's day, is, is we're going to face opposition. So how do we then resist what God has appointed? God has appointed these authorities. How do we resist that? Because if you read Romans 13, I'm leaving part of it out, it says if you resist it, you're resisting you know, God. But that doesn't... Paul saying, do everything. I mean, he still was in Ephesus in jail, and they said, okay, you can go. And he went, no, you come down here and march me out of here. So he was, he was obeying, but he was still saying, I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. It's a difficult struggle. But what I think that the answer to it is, is we have to do it with respect. Like he said in, um, in uh, 2 Timothy, um, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. Um, that's really hard to do. Sometimes you just have to bite your tongue. Um, sometimes you just have to let the insult or the inaccurate thing or whatever go. It takes wisdom. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of patience. I have great news for you, though. When you fail to do that, it's okay. Jesus has got that covered, too. But that's not an excuse to fail more often than not. It's just don't be completely disheartened when it doesn't work right, when it doesn't go the way you want it to. This is another thing this means. It doesn't mean that all Christians then should be pacifists, right? Don't oppose these authorities. Therefore, we must all be pacifists. David was not a pacifist by a long shot. When soldiers came to John the Baptist and said, what must we do? He said, you got to leave the military, man. No Christian in their right mind would be in the military. No, he didn't. What he said is, do your job. Do it well. Don't extort people. So we don't have to be pacifists. Um, 
whatever work you have to do, that could be a way that God is giving the world common grace. So if you're um, uh, working retail, when you're selling whatever it is that you're selling, is that to the, the kingdom of God? Is that furthering the kingdom of God? No, I, I asked myself that when I was in seminary. I'm like, here I am at Whole Foods. I'm slinging tofu at customers. How on earth is this helping the kingdom of God? Well, it was helping the kingdom of God because I was being kind to my neighbor. There were people with medical issues who needed to eat certain kinds of food that I could provide for them. That was just common grace. It wasn't necessarily gospel ministry. It's a way to love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever your role is, teacher or, or police officer or retail assistant or, or engineer or whatever it is that you do, that could just be your way of loving your neighbor as yourself. David was still a warrior. He wasn't going to use that skill to kill Saul. He was able to separate those two kingdoms, his kingdom and Saul's kingdom, and he kept those two roles separate. That's what we're called to do. It's a way for us to secure the peace. So in the, I was in the military for a long time. I was prepared to go blow people up and break things. That was my role. That was what we did. But I did it because the ability, demonstrated ability to do that, showed you don't want to mess with us. And it helped maintain peace to a degree. So that's, that's how it can be complicated. It can be difficult to, to figure out how, what is my role here as a Christian in this, in this thing is you have to say, well, I I'm, could be doing something for the common good that is not necessarily the propagation of the kingdom. We can keep them separate, but don't forget either side of it. You don't have to do one or the other. David did both. You can do both. We can all do both. Because there are two great commandments, aren't there? Love your neighbor as yourself. But the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You can do both. And that's what we're called to do. So how do we resist authority that God has established? When that authority is doing the right and the good thing, we don't resist it. We, we salute smartly and, and follow the orders. When it steps over its bounds and tells us what we can and can't preach, what we can and can't believe, how, who to baptize, what song to sing, which translation of the Bible to use, not to use any of them, to not believe in God, then we have to say, well, I'm sorry, but you've stepped over a boundary, and you, I can't go there. And you carefully and you respectfully decline to obey. That's what David did for us. That's what Jeremiah did. It just goes through the history of the church, and it will be, continue like this until Jesus returns. But that's the hope in this. How, how do you do it? How do you put up with that insult, that, that loss, over and over and over again? Because we know the end of the story. Jesus comes back. He sits on a throne and he rules the earth with justice and righteousness. Nobody gets away with nothing. It's all been accounted for. And so just like David having that promise, I know my kingdom is coming. I know one day I will sit on the throne. He could patiently endure with, with Saul's foolishness, his, his actually evil uh, heart in persecuting him because he knew he had a promise that his kingdom was coming. We have a kingdom coming. And we even sang it, we will, we will reign with him. We will sit on his throne with him. That's the promise that we have. That's how we endure. That's the strength. That's that, that handhold where we go, I can't take much more of this, but one day we'll rule with Jesus. That's how we resist authority that God has established in a righteous and a good way. With that, let's, play. let's pray. 
Lord, it's amazing when we go through the scriptures, through the history of everything you've been doing in the world, that, Lord, it has always been a struggle between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and the gospel of the world, between the ruler of this age and the ruler of the universe. And, Lord, that struggle will continue, and we will walk through the midst of it. But, Lord, we have a tremendous and a great promise, sealed to us by the Holy Spirit, shedding abroad the love of God in our hearts. And we have confidence as we look forward to the day when Jesus returns. So, Lord, would you help us to be good stewards of both kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, to live rightly in both of them. And thank you for the examples that you've given us of men and women throughout the scriptures, throughout history, who've done those things. And, Lord, the, the, the prayer that you taught us was your kingdom come, and that's our heart's desire. Lord, would your kingdom come and soon. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.